Brenos had just crested a hill. Sprawling out in front of him, the moors stretched on for countless miles, irregularly dotted with tiny villages, eking out a living on herding and sharecropping. Occasionally, the monotony of grassy, windswept hills was broken by small thickets of trees, huddled together in solidarity against the desolate landscape. The traveler knew from experience that the next village he would come across, Rostrid, was maybe ten miles away. Much less than a full day's travel, but still far enough to merit setting up camp for the night, as the sunset turned a ruddy golden glow. The moors were no place to be traveling at night, as Brynos was keenly aware. He continued walking, leaving the rocky crags behind and making his way towards a small copse of pine trees nestled at the foot of the hill. He was no stranger to the moors. He had been traveling them his entire adult life, in fact, sojourning from village to village and offering his services freely to all who needed them. He provided healing and advice, ceremonies and rituals, divination and auguries, charms and talismans. In return for his services, he would receive food, supplies, and a warm bed to sleep in for the duration of his stay. Brynos, you see, was a druid. If you're not familiar with the druids, you can think of him as an itinerant minister. They were the clergy of Veldrun, respected and sometimes feared by commoners and nobility alike. There was no central authority on their practices, with each druidic sect, often divided by location or theology, governing its own members. Brynos belonged to a sect known as the Fellowship of Theronses. They dedicated themselves to mendicancy, owning few belongings, offering aid, both medical and mystical, to all who need it, and living off of the goodwill of the common folk. You might think that, out of all the landscapes of Veldrun, the moors would be the safest to travel at night. Wide open land, illuminated by the moon on cloudless nights, with few opportunities to lose one's way. It sounds almost ideal. Those who lived in the southeastern region of the Isle knew better, however. The rocky hills that watched over the barren heath held unseen threats. Highwaymen were known to take advantage of the scant cover they provided to set up hideouts, and wolves were known to hunt in the area, sometimes even being so bold as to take livestock from villages. Brynos had no intention of falling victim to either. He made it to the pine grove just as the sun dipped below the horizon. The air was frigid, even with the trees sheltering him from the wind. It was time to build a small fire, set up camp, and retire for the night in the relative safety the thicket provided. A noise woke him unexpectedly. It was still dark, and the campfire had burned down to a bed of dimly glowing embers, almost as if it too had drifted off to sleep. His eyes adjusted to the darkness as he looked past the tree line, searching for the source of the noise. There coming down the hill. A dark shape was loping towards the thicket, stopping occasionally to inspect the ground. It moved on all fours, like a wolf, but something about it was off. Maybe it was how it moved, maybe it was its shape, or maybe it was just the darkness playing tricks on Brynos's eyes. For a moment, the druid waited silently, hoping that the beast would pass the thicket by. It paused again, lowering its head to the ground as if seeking out a trail. There was only one trail it could be following, however. It raised its head and pawed towards the thicket, its full attention on the traveler's hiding place. 
Brynos took action. Silently, he crept up to the fire and began rebuilding it, carefully and quickly placing fuel on the sleepy coals and stirring them back to life. He had only a few moments before the creature would see the light, and he took advantage of them to their fullest. With his knife and a stick, he extracted burning embers and placed them around the edge of the clearing, piling dry pine needles atop them. The tinder burst into flames, surrounding the druid with a sprawling bonfire. As he continued to feed the inferno, he caught a glimpse of the beast lingering just outside of the fire's light. It lurked in the darkness, circling the clearing as if trying to find a way past the conflagration that protected Brynos. The night wore on as his supply of firewood fell lower and lower, but after what must have felt like an eternity, the first hint of dawn's light began to break over the horizon. The creature retreated back up the hill. Brynos was safe. He never did get a clear view of the monster, but he didn't need to. Folklore had already told him everything he needed to know. Almost every village across the moors has a story like this. They come by different names. The Barguest, Fairy Hounds, the Black Dog. But the stories have a common thread. A wolf-like creature that stalks the highlands, preying upon travelers and killing livestock. Some stories tell it differently, though. In certain parts of the moors, seeing the creature is considered an ill omen that warns of tragedy on the horizon. Still others claim that practitioners of the dark arts can don the skin of a wolf, shifting into the form of a terrifying beast, a werewolf. It's easy to see where these stories come from. Wolves roam the moors and pose a constant threat to isolated homesteads. It doesn't take much encouragement for a mundane encounter with a predator to transform more and more with each retelling until it becomes a deadly face-off with a supernatural monster. Even Brynos, a clergyman and scholar who had spent decades walking the moors, wasn't able to tell with certainty what he had encountered. Perhaps it's best to take those stories with a grain of salt. Welcome to a world very much like our own, but with a crucial difference. In this world, folklore is rooted in stark reality. My name is John Kernett, and I'll be guiding you through stories of strange events, close encounters, political conflicts, and tragic history, all set in a unique world that blends reality and mythology. This is the Wayfarer's Compendium. The settlement of Din Alit had a problem. It began with a few sheep going missing, nothing particularly unusual given the prevalence of wolves in the area. The shepherds began keeping a more careful eye on their herds, and life went on as normal. A month later, it happened again. This time, multiple carcasses were found by the roadside, mauled and torn apart. It was unsettling, to say the least. When wolves eat, they tend to not leave much left over 
it's just too inefficient to not consume everything they kill. The townsfolk gathered to discuss the issue, and came to the same conclusion they had a month prior. Be more careful. Keep watch. Protect their livestock. What else could they do? The third month, it wasn't sheep that were found dead. It was a human. A crofter by the name of Madoc found the corpse as he rode into town. Dawn was barely cresting over the horizon when he passed by the body, so early that he almost missed it in the darkness. He reined his horse in upon seeing something odd, a figure hunched over maybe a dozen paces from the road. At first he thought it may have been his imagination, but that idea vanished when the creature reared up and looked towards him. It was lupine, with dark gray fur and golden eyes. He could see dark blood staining its maw as he finally realized what it was doing, gorging itself on the corpse. He panicked and spurred his horse forward into a gallop, fleeing to the safety of the village's walls. When he returned with a cadre of men to recover the body, they were disturbed by what awaited them. The creature had fled, but its kill remained. Nobody recognized the body, although that may have been due to the state it was left in. As far as they could tell, he had been a traveler. His dark, blood-stained cloak had originally been plain gray wool with few distinguishing features. There were no identifiable belongings on his body, nor were there any valuables. The closest thing to an answer their investigation yielded was simply that he wasn't from Din Alad. Between the attack and Maddox's description of the monstrous creature, it was too much to simply wait out. The beast had struck three months in a row and was now bold enough to hunt men as well as sheep. Something had to be done. The village sent out word of their plight. The story of the beast traveled through the grapevine, carried by travelers and jumping from settlement to settlement before eventually arriving at the city of Ardast. It caught the attention of a man named Drustin. Drustin was no ordinary huntsman, however. He was a warrior, a mercenary, and, above all else, a glory seeker. He led a band of roughly a dozen men, hiring themselves out for gold and accolades. The story had spread like wildfire, and Drustin was set on slaying the beast, claiming the reward, and hauling the carcass back to Ardast to cement his place in the growing legend of the Beast of Dinalad. By the time he and his men arrived in Dinalad, the monster was due to strike again any day, and the villagers were in a state of terror. His presence was a welcome relief. The denizens of the settlement treated him to a hero's welcome. After assuring them that he would put an end to the menace once and for all, the band of warriors set off to hunt. Many of them had slain wolves before, and spirits were high as they began their quest. When they returned empty-handed, they were unconcerned. It was early in the chase, but they would carry on until they found the creature. The next day, they continued their pursuit only to come back disappointed once more. When they returned the third day, they found a shock waiting for them. A local had been killed by the beast, right under their noses. The townsfolk were losing faith in their self-proclaimed savior. Dresden decided that drastic action was necessary to prevent another attack. That night, he and his men took a different approach. If they couldn't find the beast, they would let the beast find them. They set a trap outside of the village's walls, with Drustin himself acting as the bait. The villagers waited anxiously through the night, 
wondering whether the warrior would come back empty-handed or if he wouldn't come back at all. The following morning, Drustin returned. His men were carrying the carcass of a massive wolf, almost six feet from head to tail. Its pelt was dark gray and shaggy, matted and stained with blood. The description matched almost exactly. It seemed that the beast had finally been slain. The villagers were overjoyed. After four months of terror, the pall of fear the beast had cast over Din Alet was lifted. Dresden and his band of men received their reward and set off for Ardast, slain wolf in tow. I should clarify that most of the villagers were overjoyed. There was one notable exception. Madoc, the crofter who had seen the monster firsthand, shook his head when he saw what Drustin had brought back. That was not the creature he had fled from, Madoc claimed. You see, the creature that killed the traveler had stood on two legs, almost like a human. Many of Den Alet's residents insisted that Madoc had imagined it. It was a forgivable mistake, given how close he had been to the wolf and how frightening it must have been. Regardless of whether he was right or wrong, the attack stopped. After the next month had come and gone with no deaths or even sightings, the denizens of the village breathed a little easier. Life returned to normal in Din Alad. Druids and warriors are far from the only people to travel from village to village plying their trade. Lorcan, for instance, was a tinker. You could be forgiven for being unfamiliar with the profession. It gradually fell out of favor as villages grew into towns and towns into cities, but in Lorcan's time, it was an invaluable asset to remote villages and isolated homesteads. Tinkers were handymen. They traveled the realm fixing household items, cobbling together useful things out of metal and wood, and bringing news from far-off lands. Lorcan was much more than just a tinker, however. He kept a small stock of luxury goods and rare items from afar, peddling them when he thought a customer might be wealthy enough to afford them. It was also widely known that he was an apothecary of modest repute, and that the afflicted could come to him for medicines and poultices, if they could afford the price. If the most outlandish rumors were true, he was also a magician. For an exorbitant sum, he could curse your enemies, craft talismans for protection against evil spirits, and even brew love potions to ensnare the target of your affections. It was safe to say that Lorcan was many things. His wagon was a familiar and welcome sight to the villages he serviced across the moors, full of clattering tools and smelling faintly of cinnamon and cloves. Across its side was an elaborate painting of a hound, black as night, one of the tinker's amusements. He gave himself the nickname, The Black Dog, joking that he wandered the moors far more than any of the legendary black dogs of folklore. At the wagon's front sat the tinker himself, a tall, heavy-set man with an easy grin and a shock of red hair, touched by gray at the temples. He always wore a heavy fur cloak, shaggy and charcoal gray, to protect himself from the stinging cold wind that constantly swept across the moors. The week after the first attacks in Din Alad, Lorcan was 20 miles north. He had just arrived at the town of Carrick, and he couldn't have come at a better time. 
A tide of fear had swept over the settlement, spurred onwards by encounters with a terrible specter at the crossroads between the highway to the north and the King's Road to the west. No fewer than five townspeople had seen it, a massive black dog, appearing from thin air during the twilight hours and disappearing just as mysteriously when the sun dipped below the horizon. Alfred was the reeve of Carrick. He had been appointed by the crown to oversee the town, collect the taxes that were due, and see to it that the peace was kept, a job he took very seriously. When the specter began menacing his people, he needed someone with a knowledge of spirits and the supernatural, someone who could help protect the town, for the right price. Lorcan was that person. The magician considered the offer and asked for a modest sum in return for his services, a deal that the Reeve gladly accepted. As daylight faded, Lorcan visited the crossroads where the spectral hound had been seen and shook his head. The dog, he told the townsfolk, was a shuck, a fairy hound that brought misfortune upon those who witnessed it. There was nothing he could do to help them, he was afraid. It was possible to banish the shuck, but it would take a sizable offering to appease the spirit, given to it in a ritual that must take place at midnight. That was an unacceptable answer for Elfred. He told Lorcan that, if the magician could conduct the ritual, the town would provide the offering he had described a sacrificial goat, and a large sum of untarnished silver. Lorcan demurred, asking if the reeve was certain. It was, after all, a significant portion of the town's tax revenue. Alfred was adamant. The shuck would be exercised, and that would be the end of his people's troubles. Preparations were made. The sun faded to darkness and the moon rose over the crossroads as Lorcan readied the ritual implements, herbs and incense to be burned, an ornate knife for the sacrifice, and small stones marked with indecipherable runes. When midnight came, the magician conducted the ritual with Alfred and a number of his men as witnesses, spilling the goat's blood over the silver and chanting incantations. Then, at Lorcan's direction, the crossroads was deserted. Come morning, they would see if their offering was accepted and the curse lifted. When they returned, a gruesome spectacle awaited them. The goat had been partially devoured, and the silver was missing down to the last coin. Lorcan assured them that this meant the shuck had departed, a claim the townspeople were only too eager to believe. Fortunately, the magician appeared to be correct in his judgment. The following nights, there were no sightings of the black dog. As the magician fell back into his old role as a tinker and set out from Carrick once more, life in the town blissfully returned to normal. That normalcy was not to last, however. The next month, the black dog was spotted again, only a few days before Lorcan himself arrived on his regular circuit across the moors. Alfred was none too happy with the resurgence of supernatural activity, but he had little choice. From the town's coffers, an offering of silver was produced, as well as a generous payment for the magician's services. The ritual was conducted once more with great aplomb. The sighting stopped. Lorcan departed to peddle his services across the realm. And Alfred waited.
Four weeks later, as if on cue, the shuck returned. This time, however, the reeve of Carrick was suspicious. As had happened the previous two months, Lorcan rolled into town soon after, this time the day following the black dog's reappearance. Alfred reluctantly provided the offering and payment once more, and the ritual commenced. As Lorcan prepared to depart the following morning, his wagon clinking merrily towards the town gates, he was stopped short. The reeve, accompanied by a group of soldiers, barred his path and halted the wagon. He began searching the vehicle, ignoring Lorcan's protests and roughly emptying the assorted goods, tools, and reagents onto the cobblestone road. It didn't take long for them to find something damningly out of place. Silver. Lots of silver, in fact. The entire offering from the previous night's ritual. You see, when Lorcan and the Shuck had both appeared one after the other three months in a row, Alfred made a connection. To confirm his suspicions, he secretly ordered his men to keep watch over the offering throughout the night, against the magician's directions. Hours after the ritual, Lorcan had returned. He took the silver, as you might expect, but the sentry's description of the goat's fate was more startling. He said that the magician savaged the creature himself, devouring the animal with such wild abandon that, for a moment, the sentry thought that he had become a creature as bestial as the shuck itself. Lorcan was arrested and hanged on the charge of treason, of all things. He had, after all, swindled a representative of the crown out of an enormous sum of money, and Alfred was not a forgiving man. The silver the tinker had stolen that month was recovered, but the same could not be said for the previous two offerings. The shuck never returned. It seemed Alfred's judgment had been correct. The shuck was nothing more than a trick intended to frighten the superstitious. Life returned to normal in the town of Carrick. There is, it should be noted, an interesting coincidence in the timeline of Lorcan's fraudulent exorcisms. They occurred at monthly intervals, just like the attacks at Din Alet. They stopped after three months, just like the attacks at Din Alet. Perhaps Carrick wasn't the only town to suffer at the magician's hand. They say that practitioners of the dark arts can don the skin of a wolf and become a beast themselves. And the black dog was always known to wear a cloak, made from the fur of a wolf. If you enjoy the Wayfarer's Compendium, the best way to support the podcast is to share it with your friends. Thank you for listening.